0: Good morning. Welcome to Life Church. My name is Podge. If you don't know me, I'm the creative arts director. And uh, I just want to say thank you for Alex for leading us in worship this morning. That was a great time. Our scripture today is the beginning of Luke 7, but I'm going to flip-flop a few verses. So we're going to start at verse 11 and go through verse 14, and then we're going to jump back to one. And there's two different stories here that we want to tell. Luke 7... Starting at verse 11. Soon afterwards, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier. And the bearer stood still, and he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. And then going back to the beginning of the chapter, verse 1. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, Do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I am, too, a man set under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, And turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read stories like this in in the Bible, I think about, wow, what what a great exciting time to be living there, you know, when miracles and people were being healed and stuff like that. But I... I lose sight of the fact that the same God is still alive and active today. There's healings and miracles happening right and left, and sometimes we, we don't see them or we, we don't hear about them. A couple of years ago, I ran across this video of some missionaries from the Christian Missionary Alliance, which we are a part of, and they told this amazing story about this little girl. And so I'm going to show you a little clip of that video, so check it out one of the new ministries that we added this year that we've never had before is praying for people who came to be treated medically the students were washing people's feet and asking them can we pray for you so some people were being healed before they even got inside to see the medical personnel when the child evangelism team and the drama teams went out to these outlying villages they ran up to the students and said, we heard your God heals, will you pray? And they would bring their sick. This time during outreach, it was really quite different. We could tell that God was moving and he had a plan for the village. And there's one girl in particular that just God had an amazing story for her.
1: We went into um, one village that was previously closed to the gospel, but they let in the drama team. At the end, we asked if anybody wanted prayer. And so they brought forth this girl. Her leg was curled under and her ankle was bent her foot was turned underneath she was walking on her knees the only way she could get around was by just dragging herself through the sand with her hands first impression was this would be huge if the Lord could heal her we prayed for her once and nothing really happened we prayed again and again and again I just felt you know convicted that sometimes it takes more than one prayer every time we prayed for her she she rose up a little higher and she could walk a couple steps farther for the first time in 10 years, she was walking under her own power um, around the ground. Everybody in the village was going nuts. The dad came forth and talked to our pastor. What he told us was since he saw what Jesus could do, since he saw this healing, they were going to take her gris-gris off, which are fetishes for protection and things like that. And they said, if she wants to, she can become a Christian
0: people were coming up and saying, this whole village knows what you're doing. They were grown men that were crying, that were weeping as our kids would pray for them, or as our kids would wash their their feet. Literally thousands of people were coming out to hear the gospel. People at the campaign were were chanting, Yesu, Yesu, Yesu. And so it's like, where did this come from? You know, these are people. They don't even know Jesus. They don't even know Jesus, and they're chanting his name.
1: Jesus, Just sucks me in every time. Praise God for what he's done. And as Pod said, it's, it's hard to watch that and then sit here and not go be a part of it, right? If you've ever been on the missions field, it's like, uh, do we have to go back home to America? And then you wake up and you realize he's brought the nations here. And, and I was talking with a gentleman in between services, and I always like to say... California is like the front lines in a lot of ways. And unfortunately, people have, I don't know what art of war tactics they're reading, but I always like to, to look forward to reinforcements, not retreating, which we've seen a lot going on in California. People just look to retreat. And spiritually speaking, when you see that, we know the end. We know the victory's in the Lord's hands, and we know it's a spiritual battle, not a physical one. And we know what we've been reading and seeing is we go through Luke he's unpacking this point that Jesus came to proclaim who he is and what he's going to do and he backs it up time and time again with these miracles and with everything he said he's actually doing it and as a rabbi you would teach something on Sunday and then everyone would watch you throughout the week and the month to see if you're going to do what you said and see if if what you were preaching is actually true and he said what I just read the 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 dead are raised, the blind see, and the lame walk, that's been fulfilled in your hearing. And, and through these chapters, you see him do it. You know, compassion has been defined as your pain in my heart. Compassion is defined as your pain in my heart. And, and so often as believers, it's easy to either grab a, a truth or try and jam somebody up with, with not doing what they said they would do. And instead of, man having that compassion as Jesus had for us, seeing the pain, seeing the problem of sin, and he came to to solve that problem. He came to remove that problem. He came to heal the broken. And we we see that here. Imagine the pain Jesus, our Lord, must have felt as he ministered from place to place, town to town. And, And here we see Jesus confronting the miseries Of of a mother who's a widow who's already buried her husband, now burying her son. And then the misery and the distraught care of a centurion, a Gentile, wanting his servant, who's sick and dying, healed. And then his cousin, perplexed and questioning and doubting in prison. And finally, a repentant sinner. The amazing things, as you look at this, is Jesus helps each and every one of them. And if he just helped one, it would be enough, right? If he just came and said, hey, I'm going to give sight to the blind and and gave sight to a blind man and said, hey, I'm God. Go talk to Harry. He was blind. You all know he was blind. Now he sees. There's proof. That would have been enough. Because in our culture, it's like, hey, if God could heal me, if God could heal them, if God would do something, if the sky would show up and there'd be one sign, that'd be enough. But Jesus continues to demonstrate his power over the physical, over the spiritual, saying, I'm God. Jesus helps them all. Because compassion doesn't have a measure. Compassion ministers. And, and people look and they go, wow, you're so compassionate. How are you helping? It's because the pain that's causing so much distraught or anxiety, you put, you put that in your heart and you're like, yeah, I can't help but be compelled to have compassion and to help. And the only way as a church, as followers of Christ, can do that is if we've been made new. Not bad people being good and getting a list of to-dos, but literally being made new. Justice looks only to the merits of the case. If this person's willing, if they're credible, if, if they can, you know, they, they fill out the intake form, and if everything checks out, then justice can be, we can help them. But pity only regards the need. It it was compassion, not justice, that motivated Jesus, the great physician, to not call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Not those that think they're good, but those that know they're not good and need help and need a Savior. Although everyone missed Jesus coming as a servant, including, we'll see just briefly, his his cousin's like, "Uh, are you it or not? And and Jesus is like, I know, everyone wants us to do what we're not here to do. You're supposed to set me up, and I'm going to come and bring salvation, and then I'll bring my wrath. And that's where the the four cups of the Passover are highlighting everything God did, getting them out of slavery from Egypt. And and after the cups, they would say, hey, this is what God did, and that 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 one act of God saving us would have been enough. And there was a fifth cup, the cup of Elijah they were waiting for, he Elijah to come and do these works and then he'd explain what that fifth cup was and we know what it was, last Easter we talked about it, it was God's wrath poured out on sinful man, but God's wrath that cup of God's wrath was poured out on Jesus, so that's why we, we turn it over every Sunday to remember we're not as believers under God's wrath we're, we're forgiven and here we see this chapter parallels what Elijah and Elisha were doing in First in and Second Kings. So in your notes, there's some devotional context that's, that just my mind and heart go there, because today isn't the first day of this church. This church has been here long before I was uh, physically gathering here, but long before we were even born, the church was because Jesus established it. And God was doing stuff way back in the Old Testament that Jesus came to continue and to fulfill and say, I'm the promised one, and so often we forget that, especially in America. We're like, oh, what's God going to do for me today? Because I'm hurting, or I'm confused, or I'm doubting. Instead of, wow, God, what are you doing, and how can I join you in that? And Jesus is saying, no, we've, we've been doing this for widows. We've been raising sons. You guys read 2 Kings, 1 Kings? You should read it this week for devotions, Elijah and Elisha. And then the, the most amazing story that my son, as a two-year-old, could not put the Bible down from reading about the Gentile king Naaman who took Israel as captives, and he had leprosy, and then he went and was healed. In 2 Kings 5, you can read about it. God heals the enemy of, of Israel. Christ never preaches a funeral service. It's interesting. That's one thing as the Messiah he never had to do. Instead, he shut down a funeral service when he meets the dead, right? He get, he came to give life. The enemy came to steal, kill, and destroy. In John 10.10, 10, he came to give life, and we'd have it abundantly He who has Christ has life, and without Christ, man is dead in his sins, Ephesians 2. He gives enjoyable life, but also, more importantly, eternal life. Today, I pray that we will not simply be aware of Jesus, but be completely in awe and and enamored by who Jesus is. First, we see that the dead come to life as Jesus restores hope by raising the widow's son. Joseph Bailey knew what loss of a child was like. He and his wife, Mary Lou, lost three sons, one at 18 days after surgery, another at five years with leukemia, and the third at 18 years after a sledding accident. So when Joe writes about the death of a child, people sit up and take notice. He writes this. He says, Death is a cruel thief when it strikes down the young. The suffering that usually precedes death is another reason Childhood death is so hard for parents to bear. Children were made for fun and laughter, for sunshine, not for pain. And they have a child's heightened consciousness rather than the ability to cope with suffering that comes with maturity. They also lack the kind amnesia of senility in a way that is different from other human relationships. A child is bone of his parents' bone, flesh of their flesh, And when a child dies, part of the parent is buried. He writes that the death of a child is certainly one of the greatest agonies possible in life. Burying a part of oneself is a period before the end of the sentence. The death of a future. It's a burden that all parents fear. And this pain that some of you have felt. Some of you have known someone who's lost a child. This pain Jesus sees and he, and he comes alongside and he gives the widow back her son. And and for some of you, you've walked through that and, and Jesus has come and brought you comfort. And and in that tragedy, there's there's a lot of emotion, there's a lot of pain, there's a lot of hurt. And somehow, as the time goes by, God can mend, God can comfort, God can heal. And as Paul talks about, We're comforted in those for the purpose of comforting others. And in our Western culture, so often we go to the question of, if God's all-powerful, then why would he allow this to happen? And you fill in the blank. And namely, this is one of the most, if any question could be asked of why God would allow a child to die, it's it's this, right? And so often we put God on trial and say, well, why, if you're all-powerful, did you do this? Did you not stop this? instead of asking the question of, God, how are you going to use this? And it's hard. It's, it's, it's easy now, today on a Sunday, not in the moment, not the night before your child's dying or having to pull the plug or being in that emotionally distraught where there's no, there's no way you're sleeping. Thanks to modern medicine, doctors can give you sleep aids to help you, but there's no way. You're emotionally gripped. She's already buried her husband now she's having to bury her son. And, and here we see, and, and through Scripture, you, you learn that language that if God's all-powerful, then maybe this pain and suffering I'm enduring, God's going to use for his glory and his good somehow. And, and that's a question that, that an unbelieving world is like, how can believers ask that? Now, pastors note to the congregation, don't walk into a funeral and do what Jesus does here. And also, don't don't walk up and say, hey, let's not ask why God would allow this. Let's ask how God's going to use it. It's a great. My pastor told me. It's wonderful. It's a great. No, there's still months and years go by, but you're still in the spot saying, I'm a human. Why didn't you stop it? Why do I have to endure this pain? It's a fair question. But eventually, as we grow and we see God's in control, we go, okay, God, how are you using it? And over time, it's amazing to hear stories of, yeah, my son passed away, and this is how God used it. Or uh, a friend's son passed away, or a daughter passed away young, and this is how God used it. And and, and cancer was a diagnosis, and he passed away. You know, a, f- a friend passed away in in his late teens, and, and it's seeing how God used it. It doesn't remove the sting entirely, but it puts it in context of, man, God used it in a big way. And here, Jesus shows up, Touches the casket and everyone stops, and then he says in verse thirteen, he has compassion. Their pain was in his heart. Their pain was in his heart, and he couldn't help but blurt out, "Stop crying, you guys! You just stop it." Which again, don't do this in a funeral. Okay, don't do this in a. Don't walk into someone's house whose child has died, and hey guys, let's just stop. Let's go over and pray for the kid to come. A, a church did that in Northern California. I don't know if it was a family, or the, the, the account was kind of skewed, but we run the risk sometimes of trying to say, God, you have the power, why'd you do this? Let's just, let's just raise the kid, because Jesus has the power. Yes, he does. But may we, may we not forget, as Luke wrote to Theophilus, a young believer, as he's writing, for our benefit too, don't put our God to the test. Don't say, why'd you do this, God? Why didn't you stop it? Say, okay, I I don't know why I'm enduring this, but I need you to comfort me. I need your healing. And you comforted a widow before. So he has compassion. He says, hey, stop crying. Because we're not God. We can't say that. He is God, so he can say, hey, stop crying. I'm going to do something for you. It's going to be amazing to confirm the gospel. And he comes and touches the coffin. Everyone stops Remember, if you touch a coffin, you're unclean. So Jesus, again, puts himself under scrutiny of the law because he's caring for the more important thing, the human, right? And so he says to the young man, Hey, get up and go give your mom a hug and kiss. She's been mourning. She hasn't slept. Go, Go comfort her. And everyone, at the end of it, verse 17, the report about him spread through the whole Judea and all the surrounding country. Jesus simply tells the corpse to arise, so cruel, and so many people have ridiculed this church for spending days trying to say, hey kid, get up, hey kid, get up, and as we saw the video, it's like, more people needed to pray, and then it would work, and you've heard stories of people being in, in a hospital, and the, the person's dying, and the pastor's like, I don't know how to do it, hey, just get healed, I oh, it didn't work, I don't know how to, what? There's power, Jesus has power, God has power to heal, and he does it to confirm the gospel, but it doesn't mean he always heals. It's not a mark of salvation. It's not a mark of God. Because again, we're Western. We're used to having the, the choice of the packages for our cars. And we, we're used to having all the menus of thousands of options. And everything's at our fingertips. And we get to pick and choose instead of going, Okay, God, I don't know how I'm going to eat, but I need you to feed me. And food's going to fall from the sky, and I'm dependent on you. How are you going to use this situation? It's bad. It's worse. And we see that God, this is God. In, in Elijah, we see that the dead man, or better formally the dead, the formerly dead man sits up responding to God's word spoken from Jesus. In contrast, Elijah, which you're going to read about in your devotions this week, Elijah, who stretched over a corpse three times in First Kings 17, and Elisha, who touched a child with a staff, laid over him, Second Kings 4. Jesus simply utters a word. Jesus is God, and he just has to speak. He just has to speak, and the corpse comes back to life. Jesus hands the kid over to his mom, which parallels 1 Kings 17, 23. Jesus has restored the previously broken relationship between mother and son with renewed life. The son wasn't bad and needed to be good. The son was dead. Jesus doesn't say, oh, I'm so sorry you lost your bad son. Yeah, he was a criminal liar. Adulterer, what a jerk. I'm going to make him good for you. That would not have helped the mom. She's at the funeral. Everyone's crying. They certainly would have arrested Jesus for being insane. Although they probably should have up until the point the kid got out of the casket. It's like, dude, stop telling us to stop weeping. The kid's dead. She already buried her husband. Why are you you interrupting the funeral service? Only he has the power to raise the dead. And bring life back where there was death formerly. The power of Jesus and the presence of faith form a powerful combination. We see the power of Jesus and the presence of faith forming a powerful combination here where Jesus brings death back to life. In the beginning, verse 11, it says there was a great crowd that went with him. The crowd was full of people that were aware of Jesus, and certainly they were made aware if they had not already been. As Jesus claims to be God... Were they choosing to live apart from him, or were they actually seeking him? We don't, we don't know. But the question for us is, if we were in the crowd, are we just aware of Jesus, or are we in awe that this is God among us? As they said in verse 16, God has visited his people. Have we been made alive in Christ, and in awe that he would make us, who were dead in our sin, alive in Christ, and now have a new life to live? The second thing we see is that Jesus makes... The sick well. Not only does he make the dead live, but he makes the sick well. And when Jesus praises and heals the centurion's servant, a couple, a couple things we, we observe here is, number one, the centurion's not, not a Jew, but he's, he's really smart, he's a leader, he's got authority. So he looks at this situation, and the problem is his servant is sick. Verses 1 and 2, he's near death. The plea that the centurion, he was not worthy to have Christ come to his home... And so he looks around. And he realizes I'm a Jew, and so he gets some Jewish guys to plead his case, which reveals in the heart of a centurion. Which typically, if your servant was dead or, or sick, uh, you would just put him out to pasture. If if your servant was not doing well, you would just replace him. You'd go buy another one, or you'd you know like you do when a wrench breaks. You don't just sit there and go, man, I need. You just throw it away and get a new one. And so the fact that he cares so deeply about his servant tells a, a bit about his character. And then his intelligence and his leadership and his wisdom comes in. He's like, dude, I'm not going to get a Jewish rabbi's attention. I'm a centurion. So he gets some Jewish leaders together, and they go, and they, they plead on his behalf, and they say there's a, the centurion has a slave who's near death, and he sends a delegation of Jewish elders to ask Jesus to heal the man. They're probably Jewish civil leaders, not necessarily synagogue leaders, but they plead his case and say, you've got to heal this guy. He loves our nation, and he built us a synagogue. That's why you should help him. The various modes of religion which prevailed in the Roman era, Roman world, were all considered by the people as equal and true. So all religions are equal, right? There's all different paths to lead to God. Still the same today. And by the philosopher, they were viewed as equally false. Still the same today. You go to any... Higher education, university, yeah, all religions are false and we should do away with all of them because they all start wars. That's our narrative today. And then by the magistrates, they were viewed as equally useful. Still the same today. You read about Russia and Ukraine and the, the Roman, the popes, there's like some apparition that happened and Fatima and it's all a, a holy war and, and Rome needs to be dedicated to Mary and it's all this demonic, religious, and and the governments are in bed with religion. Magistrates are looking at, hey, how's religion? How are we going to get the church? Hitler did the same thing. Before he invaded, he got all the churches, except for a few, to be silent about what he was about to do. And all the churches would sing louder when the boxcars full of Jews would go by their church. He got the church, used them, to allow him to do what he was about to do. So, The thing here is the guy. The Jews go to him and, hey, he built us a synagogue. Do good to him. He deserves it. He earned it. Then maybe you're here going, man, I haven't been to church in a while, or I need to be at church because I need something from God. My taxes are due soon. Maybe if I go to church, it'll be easier for me. God owes me. Maybe if I give a little more, I know the church is growing, and they're trying to do some stuff and still working out some things, and and I'm, I'm excited about the energy, but maybe if I give a little or do a little bit, God will kick back. That's the same logic, isn't it? Nothing's changed under the sun. Scripture again comes back true. The power of Jesus and the presence of faith form a powerful combination. We see Jesus' response to the, the friends that come to him and who, who, who followed up with the Jewish leaders. They said, Lord, do not trouble yourself for I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. That's why I didn't come to you. And then in verse 8 he says, look, I'm in authority. I tell soldiers to go and they go and they come and they come. You just have to speak a word and it'll be done and that's why in verse nine, Jesus hears that and he marvels. And Jesus says, as he turns around, is like, "Look, I have the power." And he acknowledges it. His faith, my power, and combined with the presence of faith, form this powerful combination. Where is your faith? Jesus' power is never in question. It's are we asking the right question? God, what are you gonna? How are you gonna use this? What are you up to? Instead of why you've allowed me to endure this hard time. And we see when our faith combined with Jesus' power, it's a powerful combination. And Jesus turns to the crowd and is like, check this guy out. He's not even a Jew. All you Jews missed it. This is a centurion, and he actually believes in me. Yeah, go home. Your servant's are all good. And the, the friends go home, and they're like, yep, he's well. So Jesus has the power to make dead things come alive and sick things well. And there's a crowd there again, seeing all of this take place. Where are you in the crowd? Do you see yourself as deserving of Christ's grace as the elder saw the centurion because he gave him some money and built a building? Do you think it's works-based still? That's a lie from Satan. That's a lie saying, yeah, if you just do this, if you earn this. I was listening about a, a Muslim who came to know Christ and she didn't even know that she was a, a Muslim and what that meant because she was like culturally one and looked into it and got... And she'd always press the imams, like, so how do I know if I'm saved? They're like, you don't. It's great. Just don't ever have assurance. Just keep trying harder. Just keep working at it. What kind of peace? There's no peace. There's no hope. You're just trying to work, and you're just throwing up a Hail Mary that at the end, Allah's having a good day, and he lets you in. Because if he's having a bad day, it doesn't matter how good you are. He's kicking you out. Do you think that you can appease God or earn God's favor no Jesus work on the cross that's why everything that tries to pull away from his work on the cross is from Satan to steal kill and destroy but we have this hope that's secure that there's no money and no acts you can do it's his grace through faith that secures your hope in him and your forgiveness of sin and so we see here the centurion gets it I'm not worthy I'm a sinful man that I can't have the Savior in my home And we see Jesus just jumps into a dark, depressing situation and brings life and hope. Have you secretly internalized others' good opinions of yourselves so that despite the persistent teaching of God's word that salvation comes by grace through faith, you think and imagine somehow you can earn your way into God's kingdom because people speak well of you? Are you in the crowd aware of what God's doing and you're figuring out how to add it to your life or are you in awe and humbled that by grace he saved a wretch like you and you're so aware of your sin that you're like, man, I don't deserve it but somehow you, there's no way I could earn it but you gave it to me as a gift? No way, that's awesome. And that's the good news of the Lord that spread. Christ is interested in physical Death And bringing it to life. He's also interested in spiritual death. When the scriptures speak about spiritual death, it means separation from God. And sin always brings spiritual death. That's the wheel we keep showing you. And, And here, Luke's trying to help Theophilus and help us realize the one thing that keeps us from knowing God and growing in our relationship with God is sin. And and the more we make room for it, and the more we we say, ah, maybe I can add some of these good things and we'll just kind of deal with sin later, or we hide it or we ignore it. No, that brings spiritual death. And it means separation from God, and sin always brings that spiritual death. The forgiveness of sin is the greatest miracle of all. We see that Christ forgives a woman and she shows her thanks and praise in in the most just scandalous way. And, And in transition there, he, he encourages his cousin who's in prison freaking out, and you can read about it, but basically he, he tells a little parable about, man, these people, the Jews, they want us to do things and we're not playing their game. They're, we're, not, we're not dancing to their tune. Don't worry, John. I'm the Messiah. You're not going to have to wait for another one, which John basically knows that I'm going to die in prison. And then Luke's like, okay, now that we dealt with that, and John got encouraged. I want you to look at this. This is the most amazing where Jesus forgives sin. And you're going, Brandon, a funeral was shut down because the guy rose out of the grave that Jesus rose from the dead. And then, and then a, a centurion servant, there was a huge crowd that witnessed both, both of these evidence, incidences with just the evidence was endless. And the most amazing thing about all, and John was in prison and Jesus encouraged him, but the most amazing one was this woman this sinful woman gets her sins forgiven? Yeah, that's it right here. Check it out. It's so amazing. I'll never forget I asked a student when I was in youth ministry in San Diego one of his favorite Bible stories, and he told me this. I was like, wow, junior in high school. This is his favorite Bible story. And as you read it, you see why. Jesus is invited to eat with a Pharisee. There's a religious group of Jews. And as Jesus walks in, he's typically, and he's, he's known, for eating with sinners and tax collectors. And and John, his cousin, was accused of being a drunkard. And there are a religious group of Jews that he walks in, and there's a sinful woman who was a prostitute, the worst of sinners, who comes to see Jesus. She brought an alabaster box of very expensive perfume. We see that, verse 37, the woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. In verse 38, standing behind him at his feet, weeping. I don't know if you've ever seen a woman weep, but not to be uh, too sexist here, but when women cry, I mean, their hair gets into a huge tizzy mess, it's crazy, their eyes get all puffy and red, water works like that, and and then the, the, the emotions and the word, just fire hydrant comes out, and everything's a mess like that. And they can also turn it off like a fire hydrant it's amazing like i'm still every time you know my daughters it's like wow how did that and you knew taught you no one had to teach you that and not that guys look any more together when we weep or cry but it's just this woman i'm sure was like man i'm gonna go in and, and just have a word with jesus i'm gonna hold it together i'm gonna keep it together as I've heard a lot of women do I'm I'm not gonna fall, I'm not gonna do it, not this time, I'm not, I'm not, and the moment she sees him, it just comes out like she's just weeping at his feet in a mess, and there's tears, and there's perfume, and and it's just this scene where you're like, yeah, that's, that's she's a hot mess. Like that, there's no other way to describe it. And and she gives everything she has. She brings in their perfume, which is all that she's invested in to make her smell good, to make her attractive, to make her desirable, and she's giving that to Jesus' feet, to make him look good, smell good, to make him attractive, to make him the focus, not her anymore. It's a beautiful picture. She kisses his feet and anoints his feet with perfume, and we see she began to wet his feet with her tears, wipe them with her hair of her head, and kissed his feet and anointing them with the ointment, and instead of everyone looking to Jesus and and being in awe, this other crowd is just aware and disgusted and a little bit embarrassed. Verse 39, the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this and he said to himself, if this man was a prophet, he'd know what kind of woman she is and, and he'd kick her out. In his head, he's saying this, and Jesus knows, and I'm sure he added to this a little bit, like, man, I'm going to make sure I have a word with the servants, and she should have never been let into the courtyard. This should have never happened. I have the most prestigious teacher here. How would she get it? Jesus, I'm, I'm going to apologize profusely, kick kick her out, and he doesn't. And so he's having this dialogue, and, and Jesus answering, said to him, which, again, she's a hot mess at his feet, weeping, washing, and Jesus turns to, to Simon, and there's a couple of Simons in Scripture. We see this one in particular, and he says, Simon, let me tell you, there's a, um, I got something to tell you, and Simon's like, yeah, tell me. Like, do I need to kick her out? Like, what are we doing? You know, that's what he's expecting. He says, hey, there's two guys. One of them, they have a ton of debt. One of them's 50 denarii in debt. One of them's 500 denarii. One of them is 50 days wages in debt. One of them is 500. There's no way they can repay it. And the guy they're in debt to forgives the debt. Which Which one do you think, he says, which one with the canceled debt loves him more? And Simon's answer in verse 43 says, I suppose... You suppose? What do you mean you suppose? It's clear. One guy's in debt 50, the other's 500. Inside the pride and the arrogance, uh, I mean, chances are, maybe, I suppose, the guy with 500, the shame maybe starts to sink in, but it's not conviction. It's more of like, right, Jesus, doing your judo rabbi, like you care for this woman, compassion, her pain's in your heart, I get it, whatever. Like, he's so prideful. Suppose, and Jesus says, yeah, you've judged rightly. The one with the greater debt loves more. And he turns, because he sees how it's turning, instead of repelling the woman, embracing the woman, and he's probably, because he's seen or heard of Jesus forgiving people before, he's like, oh man, now she's going to get forgiven, and I'm going to be known as the guy that had this prostitute in my house, and she got her sins forgiven. How's this going to be for my rabbi career? Her Pharisee career. And it says in verse... He says, do you see this? And turns to the woman, I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears. You gave me no water for my feet. She wet my feet with tears. You didn't anoint me. And she has anointed me with her perfume. You were supposed to give me a kiss. And you didn't even give me a kiss. And she hasn't stopped kissing me. Simon, Really? you think you're that good? I didn't come for good people. I came for dead people to make them alive. And he says here, you gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she's not stopped kissing me. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven, and then those who were at the table with him, began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? Who is this who even forgives sins? The woman gave her all to Christ. She gave her savings, all her life savings and their perfume, her service. And, and she wiped his feet with her hair. I don't know if you've ever tried to touch a woman's hair before, but that's a precious that's really precious. And the, the thing that's not just the precious and like not nodding it and the pain of getting your hair pulled, but the unique thing is that a woman would never let her hair down only for her husband. It would always be up once she was married. And so her letting her hair down was not only a sign of, of intimacy, but it was, it was punishable in the Jewish law is the same thing as if she took her clothes off. And so she was literally all of myself, Jesus, for you. That's the picture. And not the, it wasn't an erotic. It was very just intimate and I'm undone, completely undone. And whatever punishment's coming, let me have it. I'm all for you, Jesus. And I I don't even, I'm like, I'm still wrestling with like, how do I apply that? Because is it my bank account that I'm holding on to? Is it my time? Is it my talents and doing things for me? Like, how do I try and, Say, okay, all of me for all of you, Jesus. And we see pictures of this. We see this woman completely open herself up for ridicule to come and praise Jesus. And we wonder, was she in the crowd when the centurion's servant was healed? Was she in the crowd weeping because maybe it was her distant cousin who passed away and he came to life and she's like, all right, done. I'm done with my sinful life. I'm following Jesus, I'm forgiven. I don't know. I do know there's a prominent theologian in the first to fourth century who lived with his girlfriend at the age of 17 and that began his lust-filled life that made Hugh Hefner look like child's play in comparison. And Augustine said, In the midst of my joy I was caught up in the toils of trouble for I was lashed with cruel rods of jealousy. He had it all, and then he just couldn't fight off the jealousy and fear and anxiety. And God, he said, how good you were to me mixing bitterness in my cup of joy. And God pursued him and brought him back, and, and so sinful was he, and yet God saved him. It's, it's the power of Jesus. There's nothing that can come against it, and, and it has to be in the presence of faith. And it's God's grace and gift to us that we would have faith they would form that powerful combination. Are we just aware of Jesus' power or are we in awe of it? And do we put our faith in Him? Because we're in the crowd at some point of those three stories we shared. And as we look about this, what are we supposed to think and what are we supposed to feel and do is in the midst of, of my joy, Augustine said, you put in bitterness in the middle of my joy, so that I would see the futility, the, the simplicity of, of the, the desire I had. And, and I needed God, and I wanted God, but the less and less I read God's Word, and the more I looked at what the world had to offer, the easier it was to dismiss God until I was so broken and so hungry and so needing that I had to surrender, that I had to come to grips that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. And you may, we see here that you may have a, a problem. Verse 49 they had a problem saying, who, who can forgive sins? Forgiveness is not free, and it's certainly not free from controversy. Christ forgives sins. It's his blood that purchased our forgiveness, cleanses us. Each one of us who believe on him, First John 1 John 1.7 and Psalm 103.3, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our sin. It's in God's sea of forgetfulness, And we see this peace that the woman didn't have, the peace that the mother didn't have who was restored to her when her son rose from the dead, when when the woman's sin was forgiven and she had that peace once again when Christ forgave her of all of her sin. We see in the wheel that we put up, it helps us identify maybe where we're at in the crowd. Maybe you're spiritually dead in unbelief, and then in the moment your sins are forgiven, the moment you believe, you've now been forgiven. You've crossed over from death to life. But that doesn't mean that you're free from any sickness and you need healing. As we saw in the video, Jesus doesn't always heal, but the gospel always saves. And sometimes God's healing, God's miracles, back up the saving power of the gospel. And we see as we grow in our relationship with Christ, the same thing that kept us from believing is the same thing that keeps us from growing. It's sin, and we make room for it. We say, oh, "I'm I'm only smoking weed on my days off. It's not every day. I'm not a pothead. That's not like crazy. I only get drunk like twice a week. It's not like every day I just drink, and lights. And keep, I'm not drunk all the time. Just, I don't need. I'm not. Gosh, calm down. It's like we make room for it. It's only like every four months I just lose it. And no, there's there's areas in our life I don't. I don't I'm not in debt like I'm gonna lose everything I just can't pay off my credit cards it's just there's only some areas I just kind of don't have control that that means at some point Jesus might be waking you up and the Holy Spirit might be saying hey it's time to surrender that and don't worry my power with your faith it's, it's enough and I love you I'm not condemning you I've saved you and I want to grow you to go and share this forgiveness with others because as we see the world is so Blinded and they're in darkness, and the only hope is Jesus. And those of us that have it, to look at this wheel and go, okay, where am I, and, and how do I take the next step? Luke wrote this to Theophilus to say, hey, Theophilus, where are you? Are you just aware of Jesus, or are you in awe of him? Have he, has he transformed you from death to life, and has he given you gifts to go and, and bring the gospel to a hurting and dying world? And it's time for a lot of you that are waking up and going, man, I'm an infant and I'm a child and I'm, I'm I'm, learning more. I want to grow deeper. And as you move into that young adult phase, okay, what gifts? How are you going to serve? How are you going to go share? But maybe there's some that are in that crowd that are saying, I, I need Jesus. I don't know how. I don't know what it looks like, but I know I need his forgiveness. I've been in sin and there's no peace. There's no hope. I need Jesus. And today I want to encourage you. That's the edge of where we've all been, who are believers. When we looked at becoming a Christian, as one guy said, I looked at it, becoming a Christian several times, and I, and I knew if I, if I became born again, I, I wasn't going to do it lightheartedly because I knew God would demand all from me. Like the woman who gave everything and let her hair down to wipe his feet. It was everything. There's nothing hidden. There's nothing held on to. It's all yours, Jesus. So ask yourself what areas or vices maybe in your life you're still holding on to and let Christ forgive you. Good people don't just need a kind of religion. Grace is for big time sinners and small time sinners. We all need God's grace and forgiveness. And when we embrace that, when we see it's Jesus power with our faith then we can go share that with others. So as we take this time now and, and, and pray, Maybe for you, it's a salvation prayer. Jesus, save me. I know, I don't know it all, but I know I need you to save me. And maybe for others, it's the forgiveness prayer. God, there's an area in my life I went back to and I've been holding on to and I need to let you have it. I need you to forgive me of that sin or that bitterness or whatever it is that you're holding on to. Because Jesus says, if you want to come to him for salvation or restoration or strengthening, he says these words, come to me all who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. As you take a minute to pray, may those words encourage you to, to pray to him, knowing he comes to you to give you rest for your souls.